0: Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke, welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. People think that you talk brain and think, oh,
1: that's science. No, that's access to insights
0: that you can draw for yourself. You just heard neuroscientist Marianne Wolf, director of the Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice at the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. Today, she joins Dr. Liz Brook to discuss dyslexia, the future of the reading brain, and the impact of a changing world on education on all for literacy. Here's your host, Liz Brook.
2: Thank you for joining us today as we speak with Dr. Marion Wolf, who is a scholar, teacher, and advocate for children and literacy around the world. She is the director of the Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice at UCLA in the School of Education and Information Studies. She's a member of the board at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University and the former John D. Biagio, Professor of Citizenship and Public Service at Tufts University, my alma mater. Welcome, Marianne, and thank you for spending
1: time with me today. Well, it's a joy, Liz, to have a good excuse just to talk to you.
2: Yes, thank you. I know. I'm so excited for this conversation. So I always like to start these podcasts by talking a little bit about where you began your career and what inspired your interest in literacy. So can you share a little bit about where you began your career and why literacy?
1: I think the first five letters are where it started, and that was in literature. I was And still am deeply interested in English literature, especially early 20th century German literature and poetry, the poetry of Rainer Maria Rilke, Hermann Hesse, Thomas Mann, Kafka. They were deeply influential in my formation as a person who really takes very seriously what reading can bring humanity. And so... I began with two degrees. I had a rather amazing undergrad experience at St. Mary's College and Notre Dame. I was one of the first women who were crossing the road and taking their last two years at a lot of courses at Notre Dame. And that added, and that's why I say it, that added a unique perspective on philosophy and theology and psychology that I hadn't before really thought how essential they are to the life of the mind and the life of the spirit. So that was a background that made me convinced I'm going to be a professor of poetry. (laughs) (laughs) And yet it was a very important moment in my political life. I wanted to either be in the Peace Corps or something. So there was a Peace Corps-like, organization that was sending groups of us to Native American reservation schools and I was to go to North Dakota and at the last minute it fell through they don't pay us but they had to house us and they couldn't even house us so at the last moment I think Liz you know this I was sent to Hawaii I was so embarrassed it was so embarrassing But what I didn't realize, this was rural Hawaii, which I knew nothing about, and the deep poverty that was there. These were plantation, practically indentured humans from especially the Philippine Islands and then all around the world. So I was in charge of almost 10 languages in my class. They were from everywhere. And I was as excited about literature as I am today. And I thought... That was enough to teach. I had no training, really. But I thought if you love literature and you help the kids love literature, love stories, and we won the storytelling contest, we were really great at that, but I didn't know how to teach reading. There was someone who did that I learned from, but basically it was the experience of failure, Liz, to be sure that my third and some fourth graders would become literate. And that was like an enormous shock because not only was I there to teach, I was there also to understand poverty. I never ever had connected poverty literacy and the future trajectory of children. And these kids were gonna repeat their parents' lives because I failed. My hope always has been that people after me did a better job. But the experience was, in some ways, it was illuminating, which is intellectual, but heartbreaking politically and emotionally. I had actually was able to keep up with my families for over 20 years. So most of wow. them did pretty well. Some, of course, were repeating their parents' lives. But that experience was the hinge moment in my life. And so I made sure that I would understand what in the world reading was. So with no knowledge, Liz, I simply applied to reading labs across the country. And to my still wonderment, Harvard Reading Lab, which I knew nothing about, accepted me. And I worked with Gene Shaw, who was at the time the great, real emissary of reading in this country. And that experience very quickly, and again, embarrassingly, showed me that I didn't want to study reading the way it was being taught at the reading lab. And so I ended up going to all the courses on what was basically the beginnings of neuroscience then. I studied aphasia, alexia, which led me to dyslexia. A lot of people think it was my first son whose painting is behind us. But he was not born (laughs) when I realized the impact of dyslexia. I never knew how many of the kids in my class in Hawaii were dyslexic. They were simply every factor in the world. But I became convinced that the study of the reading brain would lead me to be able to really reach in those lives at some small level and change teaching and change how we predict who was going to have what. My advisor, one of my advisors was not only Jean Chal and Carol Chomsky, who taught me a lot, everything really in the beginning about child linguistics. It was Martha Denkla, a pediatric neurologist. And she had created the RAN, Mm-hmm. And I used that as the basis of a dissertation and realized both that she and Rita Riddell hadn't studied the underlying nature of what RAND does and why it predicts. And so I began a very intense, like a bench scientist study of RAND and then helped recreate it linguistically, adding RAS, Radford Alternating Stimulus, and then publishing it And that led me to understand the nature of the fluency issues that children with dyslexia have. And it is, as Liz, it's a universal predictor across all writings, Chinese, Japanese, Hebrew. So Mm -hmm. we're still in a field which doesn't understand RAN. Even states are using it as a predictor. And it certainly is that. They don't understand that it's a set of processes that lead to impediment and retrieval that must be understood. That in turn led me, and you're one of the few people who really know this history, that led me to say, okay, what can we do about it? And at that time, my son did make a big impact because he was doing a very traditional, very good, excellent e program. But it was insufficient for dealing with some of the fluency issues. And that was enlightening to me. So, Ben really helped me understand that we needed a different form of intervention. And that led to an NICHD series of wonderful studies with Maureen Lovett and Robert Morris, who were my dearest colleagues till this moment. And Maureen had been creating a program that ultimately became Empower. I began creating a program that was called RAVO that we're we're now completely redoing and streamlining and expanding it. But all of this came, and this is so important for people to understand, all this came out of the love of literature and a knowledge of its connections to the human trajectory and how important it is that we absolutely see literacy as a basic human right wherever we are our backyard as you know we did work in Ethiopia and South Africa still do in South Africa and we absolutely must know the connection so i look at teachers as the guardians of our galaxy <laughs> are, you, are yeah uh, they are our guardians and i i taught actually before i ended up going to the reading lab, i taught two more years in inner city schools so i I've never, ever not thought of myself as a teacher. And even when I became a quote unquote cognitive neuroscientist, as I hope some of your readers know, the books that I've written are all about teaching, mm-hmm. teaching the world, if you will, that knowledge is power for teaching. the more no, The more that you know, the better you will teach. Which leads us you might ask me questions about reading methods right now because of the great reading war that Jean Chaw called a reading right. war. She was the one who wrote the book, The Great Debate that it's still and then stages of reading development those are still true today, right if absolutely you want me to well there... It, there I will but.
2: No, there were so many things in that opening. And I know our listeners will appreciate hearing how initially the literature and your love of literature and not knowing how to teach, even though you knew you wanted to instill this love of literature. And I do want to go To a connection there for just a minute with current day. But I did also just want to, for any of our listeners, RAN is rapid automatic naming. So if they weren't sure what that acronym stood for, I just wanted to share that. There were so many threads there I'd love to go back to, but let's start with this, what you just said about Jean Chal and the great debate and how you felt you didn't know how to teach reading, but you knew you wanted to instill that love of literature. I know I've said before, this was before you were at Tufts. <laughs> so to clarify, like many colleges in the 90s, early 90s, we were taught in whole language. And there is this feeling now of teachers who have been historically trained in balanced literacy or whole language. Again, I know how that feels. And some of the teachers are feeling blamed or attacked or confused. And I've mentioned it before on this podcast, Margaret Goldberg wrote a blog called Teachers Won't Embrace Research Until It Embraces Them, which is just so powerful to think about how teachers are feeling in the research world But I think your approach, whether it's in The Proust and the Squid or your other fabulous books, you tie it back to the brain and you tie it with cognitive neuroscience and all these fabulous ways. So I believe you are continuing to help these efforts and try to really connect science of reading with balanced literacy and how you help those efforts. So can you share what you might
1: be doing in that space? There are questions that both fill me with dread and fill me with joy. And that's one of them. (laughs) The dread is because I absolutely don't want teachers who were trained in methods that didn't know this knowledge base to feel that their efforts were wasted Gene Shaw is the first to say that 60% of our kids, no matter what we do, will learn to read. But that unfortunately, when we add conditions like equity, like dyslexia, et cetera, that 40% is grown to a much larger percent, depending on your zip code. And so I'm really working very hard with the group. Actually, Margaret Goldberg is part of our group. Janine Heron organized and Janine is fantastic. She's in her 80s, and I hope she will forgive me, but she's an intellectual hippie, right? <laughs> <laughs> she really is. And so she named our group the Peacenix, right? Right. <laughs> but the humor stops at the seriousness of the intent, and the intent is... By all of us, and there's all kinds of wonderful people, Laura Stewart, Margie Gillis, Margaret Goldberg, Jan Walt, Kelly Butler, I could just keep going, but it's a small group of people who are dedicated to resolving the tension. And each of us are doing different things. For me, it is really helping people, whether through podcasts like you are doing, Liz, for the world, really. Mm-hmm. I know this is a service that you are doing we are determined to help people understand that knowledge will help us out of it's not a debate any longer the tensions that exist the frustration of teachers on if you will both sides and there are tensions within the groups and i really love the luxury of saying the reading brain is agnostic it is not something that says this one is right, this one is wrong. Rather, it shows how the brain activates all of these different components. The foundational skills and phonics, of course, is essential for the foundational skills, but never at the neglect of understanding and comprehension and inference. And so I'd be happy to send you this paper. Elbow room is a way of taking our understanding of foundational skills as an expanded version. And it includes, I use that terrible acronym that Reed Lyon makes fun of. I call it possum, because of course it involves phonics and phonology, orthographic understanding and recognition, semantic development, including polysemy, syntactic development, understanding the alphabetic principle, always. And that's conceptual and cognitive. A lot of people don't understand that. And then M for morphology. These are part of what I call the foundational skills that in the beginning, we have extreme emphasis on this. It's systematic, explicit. We know how to do that, but we don't always put it together. And that includes some of the emphasis in the whole language and balanced literacy Emphasis on stories and vocabulary. So we are inclusive here, but we are never neglecting comprehension. So here's the first elbow, big emphasis. And depending on the child, they need extra intensive emphasis on one of them, but always all of this together. And at the same time, the comprehension is there in little decodable stories and in more sophisticated stories read to the child. So this is the beginning. Now, depending on the rate of fluency, it then makes this move so that it underlies comprehension. But then the emphasis becomes more and more on supporting. So the foundational skills are never gone and they're always needing more work. Look at morphology and semantics but right. and grammar. Oh, my God. Syntax is so neglected. But anyway, <laughs> I won't go there. But the emphasis becomes on what I call deep reading, and that's inference, background knowledge, empathy, perspective taking, very importantly, critical analysis. So the elbow room is like this, and the room is everybody has a place. Everybody who has been taught anything has a place, but our teaching has to be systematic, explicit. Certainly, this is all structured but it's never neglecting story. So I'm even trying to tell people that my work on RAVO is about science meeting story. So they don't think that science excludes vocabulary and literature. Of course, you can see my background, (laughs) but we should never be putting anybody on the defensive. Everybody has something to learn. I see science as constantly evolving which is such a joy. But a lot of people have narrowly defined SOR, science right. of reason, <laughs> as phonics. I'm like, you guys, if you want to look at science, look at the intervention research by Maureen Lovett and Robin and myself. We show that what is called multi-componential, which always includes phonics, but goes well beyond that, is better than just phonics. Right. Honestly, Liz, it kills my heart to think that people are saying, oh, if we do just this and we just plug that in in a non-integrative way, they're going to have success. Right. And then we're going to say, oh, the science didn't work, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And you mentioned the systematic
2: and explicit part, which is also really critical for all those components you mentioned in possum yeah. and connecting that to story and language and vocabulary, but yes. doing it in a systematic, explicit
1: and structured way, right? And that's not happening. They're throwing spaghetti on the wall. Right. They're throwing spaghetti at phoneme awareness. I shouldn't say all this. <laughs> Please forgive me. Anybody's toes who I am stepping on. But that's not it. Right. Right.
2: And I think about, again, your book, The Proust and the Squid, and you incorporate neuroscience and psychology and literature and linguistics in what is really a story of how reading has shaped the human brain and experience. And so as we think about all the focus on SOR, right, the science of reading and the misunderstanding, A, of how narrow it is, and B, that it's done, that science is done. It's not a finite thing, right? So how do you see approaching literacy, and this goes back to your introduction, literacy from that cross-functional narrative, how can that really help people inform how they see reading And how we as educators should approach that instruction. I feel like we should re-release or you should re-release the Proust and the Squid because I feel like it is such a rich way to get at the deeper, as you said, the underlying brain structures of how a child learns to read. So maybe can you just share some of the things from the Proust and the Squid that you feel like could be so relevant to this maybe misunderstanding or current reading wars?
1: Well, you've certainly given me some food for thought here because Proust and the Squid is still selling. But if we did an update, I think it would be very helpful to see reading as the great continuum that it is And one of the things that people don't realize is that reading begins in infancy. Mm -hmm. It begins when the child is on the lap. And I rarely talk about this, but that book took me seven years to write. It was really a decision to say, what if I die tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, you're <laughs> a tough professor who has no time, right? And All so right. I'm going to say, what if I die tomorrow? And they don't know this. I'm going to get it out. And then the editor harbor Harvard College says, no, not good enough, not accessible, too scientific, blah, 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 blah. And then I realized, let me just think about how to talk. And so the first chapter really, even though it became the fourth chapter, the f- first real chapter was Under the Crook of an Arm Where Reading Begins. And that's where I began to be a better writer because I thought, how can I tell it just as you're saying it so it makes me Mm -hmm. feel very good? How can I tell it as a story that is full of the information about the reading brain, but that is the story of a child in a mother's lap? and who is really listening to all these sounds, incorporating them into whatever the first language is, looking at books as a way of, first, it's an object, that's all it is, but all the knowledge, that conceptual apparatus in the child's brain is incorporating just when a parent reads. And so I actually have worked with Barry Zuckerman and Perry Class the two who began, Reach Out and Read, the pediatrician Mm, group. And really, though they've gone separate paths, period class is still with it. Barry is still working hard on insisting that it is in infancy and early childhood that reading is so important. The foundations of readings are so important to begin there. And so the book really begins, even though there's a history of reading and literacy Because I love history. Okay. I love writing systems. And I love to figure out who was the first alphabet. But that really wasn't the beginning for me. The beginning was the story. And that's chapter four. And that led me to be able to translate neuroscience into what is the brain doing at different times that allow or impede development. And that knowledge, just as you're saying is what I want teachers to know. In Reader Come Home, I made sure that what was called a letter, the second letter, the second chapter, was about the reading brain so that I was resurrecting yes. that knowledge for, in my mind, if teachers can just understand that and then move on to what is reading doing to the mind, to social development, to moral development, to economic development, but mostly to the human potential that child has as they grow. So the reading brain, whether it was Proust and the Squid, which was more the story, or chapter two in Reader Come Home, I'm trying to make this knowledge accessible. That's why it was a three ring or five ring circus in lesson two to make it fun. People think that you talk brain and think, oh, that's science. No, that's access to insights that you can draw for yourself. So knowledge can be information or it can be knowledge. I want information changed into knowledge. And my biggest hope is that becomes insights for teachers to think about how they can teach in a more almost luminous fashion because this is an amazing accomplishment. There was a wonderful teacher. I don't know if you ever knew her, Liz, in Cambridge. Her name was Meryl Pisha. Did you ever know her? She taught at a school. Oh, okay. And she always said to her kids in first grade, I have to tell you something the hardest thing you're ever going to have to learn is the first thing you're going to learn in this class. Reading. Wow. And I was just so sad when she died, fairly young, because she really knew how to teach using knowledge. And she knew it was hard. And she didn't think it was natural. One of the biggest mistakes of people who aren't aware of the science, is to think that reading is natural, that the brain works like oral language. Just like we learn to speak, right? And it's just the worst fallacy, but it has dictated, oh, if it's natural, then just let the kids induce. That was the fatal flaw of whole language. And it influenced, of course, balanced literacy in a different way, because the thought was that writing is natural and writing will lead to the induction and reading and all of that. And I have told you in emails and by the time this podcast is out, I might even have given my talks, but I am going to be speaking to, at the invitation of Lucy Calkins, the group of her big conference in October. So it might be coming out right now. And I've already given the talk, but I am speaking to all of her group, just as I'm speaking to you about the agnosticism of the reading brain and how it leads to knowledge for everyone and that it's evolving. It's not static.
2: Yes. I love that. The agnostic reading brain, because we talk about product agnostic training in the science of reading, but really that agnostic reading brain and the idea that it is not natural and it is difficult but I, again i love the way you wove that into a story form and it's such a powerful thing that you're doing with the group of other educators that you mentioned and i can't wait to hear about the response from that group because i do think All teachers have something to contribute. And it's so important, again, that we don't blame or make teachers feel as if the work they've been doing the last 25 years has been wrong or bad or whatever. So I appreciate those efforts so much and glad to hear of that group. I do want to shift gears a little bit to, you mentioned one of your other books, Reader Come Home, examines the effects of digital media on the way people read and think. And you raise that when people process information quickly in brief bursts, as is common now, they curtail the development of that contemplative dimension of the brain that provides humans with the capacity to form that insight and empathy that you've been talking about. So there's really, I see both positive and negative impacts of this shift. So what do you think are the most critical concerns and the most positive opportunities?
1: Mm, It's such a good question. I have been struggling with this issue ever since I finished Proust and the Squid, actually, because as I said before, it took me seven years to write. And so by the time I was finished with it, I looked down and everything is going digital. And I'm thinking, oh my God, it is changing everything. And the brain is going to change. The reading brain reflects. Reading brain doesn't exist. It is developed. And it is influenced by the writing system. So, whatever your writing system changes the circuit a little bit, there's similarities, but there's also differences. And so, the medium is going to be reflected in the reading brain's development and its use, its maintenance. The old aphorism, use it or lose it, in neuroscience is true for the reading brain as anything else. So, I was looking in two books, once called, that nobody reads, absolutely nobody. Well, I shouldn't say that. Maybe in England they do. But Oxford had a series that they wanted me to think about this. And that was called Tales of Literacy in the 21st Century. So he used Canterbury Tales for, oh. <laughs> for each of the chapters. As I said, no one reads it, (laughs) but the research I did for that took me to the Stanford Center for Advanced Study of the Behavioral Sciences. And I used all that literature, all that research and said, again, how can I make this accessible to people to understand that the reading brain reflects all these things? It reflects how it's educated. It reflects What the writing system is, what the background knowledge of the person is, and it reflects the medium. And the medium's characteristics are called affordances. And the affordances of print are different from the affordances of digital. And the digital is absolutely a brain saver when it comes to how can we absorb all the information we're bombarded with. There are Unbelievable amounts of words that we process every single day, much more than in the past. The only way to do it is almost like a defense mechanism is to skim. So we've become beautiful at skimming. And there are researchers who have said skimming is the new norm. And I actually wrote a Guardian article on skimming and its effects on Democracy. (laughs) (laughs) All the way from the brain's milliseconds that it doesn't use for empathy and critical analysis, all the way to how susceptible that brain is, if it doesn't use those milliseconds, to misinformation and disinformation, which leads to being susceptible to demagoguery, polarization, with all this information, paradoxically, People aren't using all of it. They go to their familiar silos that confirm their original biases, support it, rile them up, fear, emotion, all this is the the secret sauce of different groups who want to convince people to think like they do. So you instill fear and anger, you do all these excitatory things, and now you have a very susceptible population. To thinking that they are doing the correct thing when they are simply conforming to whatever they got from these familiar sources. And by the end, that human being is susceptible to being convinced by demagogues.
2: Yeah, that's an amazing connection. I just think like for people to understand that is so powerful, especially in today's political climate. That is just amazing. So I think about that as one of the biggest concerns around this digital era and the skimming. And I just want people to pause and think about that. And it's really just earth shattering, I think. Are there more positive opportunities coming out of the digital literacy
1: the first thing I say in that book is that you must not think in a binary fashion. It's not either or, and it can't be because we are in a digital culture. I used to write about and this hinge moment between digital and print. It's no longer a hinge moment. We've become a digital culture. We've shifted, yep. And with AI, we have even greater concerns and greater advantages. Mm-hmm. And those advantages are huge. From the very micro level, you and I are talking. We are using this medium to be able to disseminate knowledge in ways that were unique to this era. Liz, we couldn't have done half of the dissemination that we are able to do now because of technology. So always the principle I have is not what technology is good or bad, but how can we instill wisdom into which technology to use for what purpose, for what individual, when and under what circumstances?
2: And so with that in mind, I think that's a really great point. And so what should educators and parents consider regarding digital tools, both in
1: literacy, and their personal reading. Right. So here's me also saying the reason why I wrote Reader Come Home as letters, because I want a dialogue with the knowledge base that I knew that others would have and that they should be bringing their knowledge base to bear to the questions of what are the cautions? What are the advantages? What are the real disadvantages? And so these are three things. If only it were so simple, we're in the frontier of knowledge. And it's a really harsh reality that our innovations are ahead of our knowledge. I can tell you all the sites and there's wonderful work done in Europe that shows that the comprehension of our young adults when they read the same story on print versus digital, that their comprehension for things like the sequencing of details a lot of different things related to understanding are better on print. Even the most recent digital native is better on print. And yet they believe that they're better on digital because they say they're faster and they equate speed with doing better. Well, the research and Naomi Barron has written a book, How We Read Now, that's at Oxford Press, that's brand new. But all of this research is showing us that there are advantages and there are real disadvantages to cognitive development, to linguistic development. And so in Reader Come Home, my answer for parents and educators is that we must teach digital wisdom to our children. But, and here's my big but, (laughs) (laughs) I believe that we should, even though I think the term probably... I shouldn't use because of our emerging English language learners use the term biliterate brain in a different way. I've used the term biliterate brain actually a little before that to establish a and like, and Liz, you remember you're Vygotsky. Mm-hmm. So Vygotsky <laughs> had this look at thought and language as thought has this trajectory, language has this developmental trajectory, and around one and a half it comes together and braids, and then it five, it really is integrated, but it always has these separate lines too. Well, that's how I look at digital and print. I want a print-based 10 years. (laughs) Give me 10 years of print. At the same time, I want at least 10 years of very gradual exposure till five, and then work on all kinds of things, programming, Oh my gosh, there's so much really good work on how kids can learn to code and program and that that's building all these cognitive skills that they need very much. So that I'm looking at Vygotsky and parallel growth and always some coming together. For example, in our studies with dyslexia and other struggling readers, some of them really benefit greatly from practice using digital games. They're a lot of bad ones out there, please. But actually in RAVO, we're doing for the first time a hybrid so that we're trying to teach our children print, but also teach them to use digital orthographic practice games. And that automaticity and, and practice. Exactly. correctly. Mm-hmm. And I know you have so many things that you really are doing in Lexi and the technology world that is so beautiful. And I'm so happy to be on the board to really learn and to potentially contribute some of the cautions. But the just as an example, what we realized in teaching is that the teacher can't do as much as our own intervention demanded. So we are using technology for the teacher to be able to do things more expeditiously, while at the same time, really having our students learn with print and learn to use digital technology in really appropriate ways. And after school, we want these lessons for parents to be able to say, what is the wise use of technology? And there are certain programs that really do it well, and there are programs that don't. And Laura Stewart just actually wrote an essay about really looking at evidence-based materials versus evidence-aligned. And I know you know this, but so many people, they say, oh, so it's aligned to science. Oh, what does that mean? Right. Do you have you know, This could be just, again, spaghetti on the wall, a little of this, a little of that, a little of that. What's the evidence for that particular combination? Right, that scope and sequence, that program. Exactly. Yes. So yes. we just have to have teachers trained to discern and not right. say that if something has the word aligned, that it right. is. Based. Or
2: science of reading stamped on the front <laughs> cover. And you mentioned your research in this area. Specifically with students with dyslexia. And I know there is so much we could discuss about research and dyslexia beyond even just this digital literacy. So I want to make sure we have time to talk about one of the things that I know you're working on, and many states have started to realize the importance. Of early screening. Exactly. So, can you speak to your work in this area, especially in the early grades of K2 around the importance of early screening for
1: dyslexia? Yes, I'm really so glad that you asked this. We didn't really go very far, but when I talked about how reading begins in infancy, What goes on in that zero to five period is essential to understand. Let's just pretend these are processes in the brain and they're developing from zero to five. Well, what if they aren't developing and you only have some things that are developed? How do you know that? How can you make instruction over here really address when you only have... A a battery that's not working. And what is it that you need to know? Well, you need to know what all these components are doing in that zero to five period before you take that information and teach as well as you can the individual profiles of kids, because they are not one size fits all. And that's why states are really trying to say, what can we do to give this knowledge to teachers? And so sc- I look at screening as this, trying to find out what's going on in all these areas. We have an Office of Special Education grant, the OSEP program, in which we are looking at one screener and simultaneously we're looking at another screener, one that, is, that you purchase, one that is free, and we're looking at the development of these different screeners and trying to contribute knowledge to them that is about this, that they should be measuring all these things. Now, there are major predictors. Thank you for saying what RAN is. RAN is one of those predictors. And even though the brand that Martha Dinklin and I did is one thing, most states have their, I would say their imitation. <laughs> But all <laughs> right. they wait to ask for it. Well, they don't know why they're asking for it. They know that it's one of the two best predictors: phoneme awareness and ran are the two best predictors. And in different children and with different language bases, one is more predictive than the other. In Italian, ran is the far better predictor. All I'm saying is that they are taking in screening measures of these developing components that will become the reading brain. Now, it began because so many parents, especially in like the decoding dyslexia group, were so amazingly organized. They demanded from the state, help us understand this before the children goes into school and fails, fails publicly, fails and by third grade, moves from a sunshine child to a child and feels that they are a loser. And right. everything is affected. Social Everything, yeah. Everything is affected. When you're young, it's like the red badge of failure. And right. it carries. Waiting until they fail before. Waiting until they yeah. fail. Screening helps if it is used correctly. And that's the big if. If it's used correctly, it tells the teacher they don't have background knowledge, or they have a lot of background knowledge, but they really don't have a clue. The phonemes are not represented in the right or in a way they need really a lot of work on that. Or these are all okay, but the retrieval now just to return to Rand, just so people understand, and it's not about my test at all. It's just about a measure of how visual information is connected to language processing and cognitive, but especially visual language. That's what it's doing. And when that is not functioning, you're going to have fluency-based issues here. So you have to be thinking, what are all the things that might've caused that? And your intervention, your instruction better be going after that. Now, then there are things that are really based on language background. No, Liz, this is going to be, Controversial. I'm just gonna say right off the bat, this is controversial. I'm working in California on a screener that's free, been tested on 8,000 kids. UCSF, Mary Lou Gorno Timpany is leading this. They're having all this, if you will, tension because parents whose children are emergent English language learners, sometimes they're bilingual, sometimes they're trilingual. These are beautiful brains. But they're worried that the kids on a screener will show poorly and be placed in special education. I just have to beg people to understand that is not what is a screener. A screener is not a diagnostic. There is no diagnosis. No child on the basis of a screener is placed in special education. What a screener does gives information about what's being developed or what is not. And then you have a full panoply of other things. What is the cultural background? What is the language background? What are the things that teacher knows that adds to this? But this is essential to know because the children are not being over-identified. The research is showing they're under-identified. Right. That
2: screener is that quick check that gets the start and then you start building that profile around it, as you say. Exactly correct. But it is so and they critical. they are
1: not over-identified. Right. You know, it has happened that they are. I'm not saying that hasn't. And therefore, I understand the worry. I understand the concern. But I am as concerned, if not more concerned, over the fact that so many of the children are under-identified till third and fourth grade. And then they're over-identified for special ed- because they didn't get early intervention. And here's the last thing I'm going to say on this. This is really important. So Robin Morris and Maureen Lovett and I have done a lot of intervention studies under Reed Lyons in ICHD. These are randomized controlled treatment studies. These are gold standard. These are the hardest darn studies to do. And I promised myself I would never do another one. (laughs) (laughs) But the two major insights that we get, especially when we do longitudinal work, Is that the earlier the intervention, the better the results for that child over time. Early intervention. And I'm talking first grade, second grade, not third grade. Right. And then the other one was because you've got all these different things possible. We look at intervention, especially for the most struggling, in terms of multiple componential It's always explicit. It's always systematic, but multi-components, not just one. And there's, forgive me all of you who are doing only one kind of intervention on one of these. No, any child, especially who has fluency, will need more. Now, there are kids who only have phoneme awareness issues, and we know that. Fine. Just do that. (laughs) Do that within the whole, fine. But I should be very precise here. This gives you the opportunity for differential intervention. You can say, oh, this child only has this weakness. So you give all your good program that's explicit, blah, 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 but you put special emphasis on this. Or this child has all these things wrong. You have to have an intervention that's going to be capable of really addressing all these things. And this is not rocket science. No, (laughs) this is our science. This is our evolving science. This is our evolving intervention science. <laughs> right. And when you're saying this, in case people aren't
2: seeing your hand, so the first thing is the rich data on those individual components from the screener, right, is helping to build that profile, that initial profile that is going to then drive the differential intervention. And that from your multitudes of gold standard research, the idea that the intervention, the earlier, the better, and that it should contain multiple components, that it shouldn't just isolate one skill. If the student just has that one area, they can work on that, but within the whole and explicit and systematic. That's exactly right. And so... I know we're coming up on time here, but I just would love as we think about October is Dyslexia Awareness Month. And you have done so much work in this area. I know you did work around the dyslexia fluency in the brain was 41 international specialists. And you were the editor. It was Compiled to address the role of processing and literacy. And what do you wish? And maybe it's just those two major, and I use the word just, but those two takeaways are so critical. But are there other key takeaways from all of your work in this area that you want to continue to make sure are front of mind for folks when they think about dyslexia?
1: Thank you. I'm really happy to answer that, not to answer it, to speak to it. What are the absolute major insights that we've had by different research groups? And we're all working together. We're (laughs) working together on Rainbow again. It sounds fun. But what we're trying to do, and it's not just about Rainbow, it's about what can we take from the knowledge in the last 20 years? Heterogeneity, number one. Our definitions of dyslexia from the old IDA 2003 have to be redone. We have one article for Annals of Dyslexia. Tim Odegaard, the the editor there, is so wise. He really asked all these people to, what would you do for a new definition? Number one, if the reading brain teaches us anything, reading can be impeded in different ways. And I only wish it was just one thing. It is not. And we did work on what was called the double deficit only as a placeholder because everyone was believing it was only phonology. So we said we have all this evidence that RAN is separate from that. But what is RAN? RAN can have different reasons why it's impeded. You have to know that new work by Jason Yateman at Stanford is showing that there can be interesting differences in the visual word form area, in visual areas, and it is showing us the nature of heterogeneity that there are single deficits, there are kids with two deficits, there are kids with three. those same children. Now here I'm talked about heterogeneity and weaknesses. Those children have strengths. So number two is heterogeneity of weaknesses. and number two is heterogeneity of strengths, strengths. I love and they have to be part of it. We're revising part of our work. An intervention to incorporate activities that develop those strengths right away. Look at my son. He has painting. beautiful painting. So it just awakens my spirit to see what he's been able to do. But for the first three years, I had to work like every parent to keep his ego intact, which is number three, and that is the social emotional consequences sequelae early failure. We have to intervene early so that we prevent them from thinking. I have letters on my desk right now from adult dyslexics who said, we never knew why we were losers, why we were failures. And then they go on and become a CEO sometimes, but sometimes they go to prison Right, and we must change our conceptualization of dyslexia. So number one, heterogeneity. Number two, looking at strengths. Number three, looking at what we can do to, in essence, transform our conceptualization of dyslexia as one of the essential brains Homo sapiens has. And it developed before we ever learned to read. It was there for a reason then, Before literacy was invented, it's here for a reason now. I would do a genetic study tomorrow to just (laughs) prove this point. But the reality is we must change our understanding of dyslexia. It's my son continues to surprise me. Mm. Why? His brain really thinks differently. I am never, ever going to cease being surprised by my own son. This is a brain that thinks differently and we must never lose its importance for society. And it also is a brain that's just like everybody else's and has weaknesses and is not a genius and is not going to be an entrepreneur, but has its own strengths and its own potential trajectory. We cannot neglect a single dyslexic, but, and this is the fourth point, all the work on dyslexia helps all children. Yes. My fourth point. I am so lucky to have chanced upon this because of my kids in Hawaii and my failure. It gave me an opportunity to say, how can we find knowledge that's going to help as many kids around the world as we can learn to read and therefore have their best shot? their potential.
2: That's what it means, Liz. Oh, I love it. I love it. And that growth mindset that you had from Hawaii, and that we have to encourage in all of our students the idea that Babe Ruth had the most strikeouts and the most home runs, right? That we have to continue learning. The science of reading is not finite. Um, And so maybe one more question just as we wrap up, what are you seeing that makes you most excited for the future? related to reading and the reading brain.
1: Even though I am working really, really hard at expanding people's understanding what the science of reading is, I can't believe everybody's talking about science. It's like, you gotta be kidding me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thrilled. And I'm actually thrilled that the RAN is being used, even though it's used in ways I wouldn't even want them to use it. (laughs) They're understanding importance of fluency for children. So I'm thrilled that's happening. And as you know, Liz, rarely do we get a second chance to use all our knowledge. And in my world, I'm using it to recreate a very good intervention and help make it have principles. For everybody else to learn from. So whatever happens to our rainbow, it's just for me like dyslexia itself. The more you know about one intervention, the more you know about how the brain retrieves a single word, the more you know to give others for their work and their programs, and but most importantly for their teaching of children. And they are our hope. So I'm yes. very excited about the use of science. Just don't restrict it. Don't make it static. Right. <laughs> it's
2: very or static exciting. or finite, right.
1: No, you know, that's just not true. And don't forget the history that goes into it, which is such a joke. It's like, don't be selective of what you call science. Science is cumulative. I love it.
2: Oh, <laughs> thank you so much, Marianne, for taking the time today to talk with us. I know our listeners are going to learn so much. I know how valuable your time is. So I really appreciate it.
1: Well, Liz, as you know, I have been doing a few too many things. Yes. But when I knew it was you, I thought, with Liz, this could be fun. This isn't going <laughs> to be nerve wracking. This is just going to be fun Two. Reading Warriors. That's what you are. Oh, thank yeah. you. And so let's have fun. at right. We fight. We As we We have to we fight, fight for our
0: words.
2: Yes. Oh, thank you so much. Absolutely. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners for joining Marianne and me today. I look forward to hearing from you in terms of future topics that connect educators and researchers. What topics do you want to hear more about? And help us welcome more people to the literacy conversation by leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribing so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. So, again, I'd love to hear more about what you're experiencing in literacy education. You can join the conversation on Twitter by following Marianne at Marianne
0: Wolf underscore and myself at Liz C Brook. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the literacy conversation.